This is a talk by Fred Chambers titled Spiritual Psychology 103, Sufi Perspective, recorded May 16, 2010 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Okay, good morning. Buenos dias. I'm taking a beginning Spanish class, so I have to throw in a few Spanish phrases every once in a while to keep myself practiced up good. So this morning we're going to continue on this series I've started of spiritual psychologies. I've done it from a Buddhist and a Jewish perspective. Today is Sufism. Sufis are the mystics of Islam. So I'm going to try to do a little different structure, though, with this talk today. Uh, a little more free form, a little more poetic flow to it. There are kind of three things that made me kind of decide to change. First of all, I got some feedback from a spiritual brother about a month ago about these talks that I give. He said, you know, standing up there in front with these, you know, with your notes and talking, it's just not you. It's just not your thing. So the bar is set pretty high for people who give these talks, and maybe you need to do something a little bit different. So I really couldn't disagree with him, but I said, well, what do you think would be a good, something good for me to do? I didn't really know, but maybe, maybe a little more, some poems are poetic. That was kind of interesting because you know, I've, done a, I've done a few poems that kind of come to me, but they're always, at least most of them are a little bit on the obscure side and not easily understood. And one came to me yesterday that I thought I'd kind of share just to show you my style here. Corn muffins in the grinder. Where do you think we'll find her? Sucking shitty lollipops. Happiness happens when you stop. The first part is kind of crazy. Corn muffins in the grinder, you know. The, who knows what that's all about? <laughs> and uh, but this last one, sucking shitty lollipops, happiness happens when you stop. It's actually kind of similar to the, the teaching of uh, somebody holding on to a hot potato. They're complaining because their hands are burning, and you say, "Well, just drop the potato." You know, it's, you're holding on to a hot potato. You're causing your own suffering. But they don't. Uh, no, that's not it. So the thing is, you have to get them to to see for themselves, observe themselves, and see. Once you notice that uh, you're holding on to a hot potato, you just drop it. And it's similar with sucking a shitty lollipop. You're complaining about everything that tastes shitty, you know, and it's like, well, dude, you're sucking on a shitty lollipop. <laughs> no, that's not the problem. That's, that's not that. <laughs> so once you notice that that's the problem, you just spit it out. It's not, you don't have to think about it. So anyway, I got that feedback about maybe I need to change my style. And the second thing was just this talk on Sufism. You know, Sufis are, really, are known for their poetry. Actually, there's this kind of a devotional path, and they often say that poetry speaks to the heart better than just normal words, normal conversation. And Rumi and Hafiz and uh, Attar and several others, that just you could just stop with Rumi. He's like the most well-known, famous poet in the world. Beautiful poetry. So it's just kind of synchronistic that I got this feedback, and I was doing this talk on uh, Sufism, where they work a lot with poetry. But I still was kind of going through a, a regular talk, how I have usually structured it, and kind of the final ingredient was uh, sipping some really fine tequila. And then I started pondering, I started looking at this structure, and I was just thinking, well, this just, something's not right here, something needs to change. And so that uh, tequila would kind of just put me over the edge and make me go loco and decided to change the structure of this talk after it's already 90% complete. So still kind of a work in progress. And we'll 
we'll see what happens. We'll forge ahead for good or for ill. So I mentioned that uh, love and devotion are kind of a one of the main the main flavor or emphasis of the Sufism. So I'll just uh, read a poem from Hafiz that kind of illustrates that. Once a young woman asked me, "How does it feel to be a man?" And I replied, "My dear, I am not so sure." Then she said, "Well, aren't you a man?" And this time I replied, I view gender as a beautiful animal that people often take for a walk on a leash and might enter in some odd contest to try to win strange prizes. A better question for Hafiz would be, how does it feel to be a heart? For all I know is love, and I find my heart infinite and everywhere. That language kind of just kind of warms your heart, at least does mine, to, to hear a poem like that. And so that space of being open-hearted feels pretty sweet. But it's easy to lose that as we go about our, go through our day-to-day lives. And so one of the, the practices is to try to learn to stay heart-centered while we're interacting in the world. Well, here's just a quote about practice in general before we, we're going to do a little practice to kind of to feel with our heart. But just about practice in general is a quote from uh, Sufi Bastimi. The thing we tell of can never be found by seeking, yet only seekers find it. So it's a good paradox to remember when you're doing practice. So this practice is just to imagine the heart as a sun. And so when you're busy with your mouth and your and your mind talking to somebody else is to reach out and radiate that light out to everyone and everything you meet. So we're actually going to do that. We're going to you know, turn to somebody to your right or to your left, either two or threes, kind of get the energy moving here a little bit. And the thing is, is just to ask each other little short questions. You know, we're just going to do this for maybe a minute, so it won't harm you too much, I don't think. To just try this and, and to speak I mean, your mind and your mouth are asking questions and then you're listening, but try to radiate with your heart and touch the other person with your heart, from your heart. So just turn and then I'll ring the gong when we uh, start her in. And move on over there. If you wish to follow our format, Stop your player now and practice these instructions. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program. So like I said, Al-Ghazali was the founder of Sufism. Forgot, I'm trying to, trying to do this a little more poetic style. Al-Ghazali, founder of Sufism. 12th century, 
early part of. Three elements he had. Knowledge, states that are produced, acts or deeds. Similar to modern psychology. Cognition, affect, behavior. Even back in the 12th century, he had similar things that modern psychology are based on. Cognition or thinking, affect, feelings, behavior, how we act in the world. What were his that you just said before that? Knowledge, states that are produced, be feelings, and acts or deeds. Book, Alchemy of Happiness. Theory of the time, alchemy, where base metals could be transmuted into gold. So his analogy is that the base elements of the ego, the cause of suffering, suffering can be transmuted into spiritual gold or happiness. The basis of everything he talks about is this line from the Quran: "He who knows himself knows God." And the word he used for self was an Arabic word, nafs. He who knows his nafs knows God. Nafs can be translated as ego, ego, essence, or most often it's translated as self. The essence of self is kind of what I like. And this, this is not a static structure. This is kind of the interplay between the material aspect of ourselves and the spiritual aspect, you know, between the body and the spirit. The three things you have are the thinking, the acts of behavior and the states produced, it's this whole interplay between them, kind of what the nafs are. And the nafs can start with the lower nafs and move to the higher nafs, which is union with God. You also see us as having animal and angelic qualities. We can be lower than the animals, higher than the angels. You can just see that if you just look at the world, you know, animals aren't mass murderers, but human beings can do that. So we can become lower than animals. And angels are kind of messengers of God, but humans can become directly, have a direct knowledge of God. So we can become higher than angels. And five questions that guide us, he has in his book. What is your misery and where does it lie? What is your happiness and in what does it lie? Where have we come from? Where are we going? For what purpose were you created? What is our happiness? Where does that lie? I don't know about you, but the only... The times I'm most happy is when I've let go of self. Selfless action. And misery is kind of the flip side of that. Most miserable is when acting selfishly, self-conceit, caught up into what the self needs to do and has to do to protect itself or enhance itself. So these are questions that kind of to ask yourself, to look at. Where do we come from and where are we going to? You can look at that two ways. When Before we were born, what were we? And after we die, what are we? So it's like this, we rise out of nothingness and return to nothingness. 
But also if you look closely, that's happening every second of our lives. The body arises in awareness. Then when we're looking out somewhere else, the body is no longer in awareness. Feelings arise and dissolve. So moment to moment, where do we come from? And where do we go to? For what purpose were we created? Well, to find the answers to the other four questions. You know, some tools he recommends for transformation. To move from attraction for the world to divine knowledge. Uno, number one, self-observation. So it all starts with attention, paying attention to ourselves. Look at those questions of what makes us happy, what makes us miserable. What are we doing? How are we acting? And being committed to that process. Because maybe we don't like what we see, so it's easy to turn away. Self-discipline is the second tool. Back in his time, they called it morality practice. We do precept practice here at the center. We have ten selfless precepts. So really, when you see that you're addicted to power or pleasure, and then you see that you're causing yourself and others suffering, well then it's a good idea to adopt some moral precepts. Honesty, sexual restraint, taking responsibility for your own life, to kind of wean yourself away from selfish action, or at least to see when you're doing it, and then being able to stop that and have the opportunity to to move in a more selfless way. Seeing self in others, the third tool. It's similar to the ascending and taking practice we're doing now in our practitioner group. We're doing ascending and taking with people who push our buttons. So what we do is we, we notice when our buttons have gotten pushed, we've been anger has risen up in our lives. So the task is to take a look at that. What did that person do to cause this anger? And then to see when we have acted the same way in our lives. And what were we feeling when we acted that way? And so it starts to break down that barrier between yourself and somebody you see as an enemy, or somebody who really makes you angry. With the sending and taking, we, this is to breathe in their suffering. So based on how we saw ourselves acting, we can imagine how they might be feeling. So we breathe their suffering in and send back out love and compassion to them. So that's one way of seeing yourself and others. And quattro, number four, is remembrance of God. This is one of the main Sufi practices. We're really trying to clear out the heart of everything that is not God. And what is left is this pure divine presence. We're going to try that practice again pretty soon, so we'll, I'll talk about it more, more later. And another concept from Sufism that's kind of a nice idea to entertain is that we're not worldly or material beings seeking spiritual truths. We're spiritual beings remembering our true nature. Spiritual beings remembering true nature. Not worldly beings seeking spiritual truth. If you can kind of entertain that, at least think that that might be true. Well, what, am I really a spiritual being? Well, if you can have a little curiosity about that, then you have a 
you know, the opportunity is there to investigate that. So the Sufis list seven levels of nafs, or seven levels of the self, the essence of the self. I'll mention six of them and try to tell some uh, Sufi stories that kind of illustrate what these levels, where a person might be. It's, good, it's just a good to get a sense of where you are in this on kind of this hierarchy of, of uh, where the self is, on a lower level, a middle level, a higher level. Even though you kind of move, it's not a linear thing, you kind of move around and re- revolve around, but still it's good to see the stories kind of illustrate maybe what you, something you'll see on that level or something you need to do to keep moving ahead. So the number one is the tyrannical knots. This is kind of the beginning of the spiritual path. Observe ourselves. See ego in control. Slaves to pleasure. Whatever that pleasure might be. Sex, power, money, self-importance. We tell the story of Moses and the Pharaoh and the Israelite slaves. Just to digress a moment. One of the nice things about Sufism is they is they honor the Christian and the uh, Jewish faith. They say to be a, become a Sufi is to love Jesus as much or more than a Christian, and to love Moses as much or more than a Jew. So anyway, they, they use this story of the Israelites. The Pharaoh is our ego. He's in control. He's commanding us about, you know, just we're seeking pleasure in different areas. And we're slaves to that. We're just slaves to pleasure, we just kind of go for the door of pleasure, aren't really seeking anything else. We're in suffering, but we don't realize it. Or even if we do realize it, we don't know what to do. But also, Moses is the liberator. So there's also this aspect of this divine essence is within us. So the story goes, Moses was, God sent Moses to Egypt to free the Israelis, the slaves, and so there's this whole dynamic between Moses and the Pharaoh. Moses would go talk to the Pharaoh and convince him of the power of God, and Pharaoh would say, okay, I'm going to let the people go. And as soon as Moses left, Pharaoh changed his mind. Now I'm going to keep him around. I like the way they make the bricks. And I mean, that's kind of what we do. We, kind of, we start on the path and we notice our ego is in control, but then we get a little glimpse of something divine and think we're going to follow that, but then the next second later we're, we're back into, into doing what the ego wants us to do, all this seeking pleasure, wherever we see it. And so Moses had to come back again. He had to come back several times. Really this is, kind of story kind of goes applicable for the whole path. You, know, you just have to keep coming back. Slowly you can free yourself. Slowly the, the slaves are free. So we've allowed these idols into our heart. So we need to liberate them. And so at this stage, practices are very important. When you're first beginning out and you notice how strong the ego is, these practices are vital to kind of help break this chain of conditioning and habit that we're caught up in. So although self-observation, like we mentioned, self-discipline, moral precepts, and the fundamental practice is remembrance. Remembrance of God. And the Sufis repeat the phrase, La ilaha illallah. 
translated there, there are no gods but God. Or a literal translation is, no gods, there is God. So really, with this practice, you're trying to cleanse the heart. So this first part of it is, there are no gods, or no gods. There are no gods, anything that arises, all these thoughts, feelings, anything we're attracted to, all these pleasures, they're not God, they're not what we're, not the ultimate, what we're seeking, not the God. They're not the ultimate divine, they're just appearing as little small gods, we kind of invest them with some uh, their pleasure, they're not the bliss. So by saying la ilaha, or by saying no gods, is to cleanse the heart of that. It's kind of a, it's a mantra practice. La ilaha, cleanse the heart. Ilala. Is that how to say it? Abdullah? Yes, la ilaha illallah. La ilaha illallah. <laughs> and his heart, just to clarify, is not the physical heart. It's just the essence of the divine within us. The divine inner, inner God. And this remembrance is a deepening process. First, start out saying it, repeating it to yourself silently. And so it's the tongue. The tongue speaks it and it deepens into the heart. You bring it down, let the words take you down into the heart area. And then it deepens into the universal heart. Because initially when we bring it down into our heart, we still have this sense there's some self there that who has this essence. But really to deepen it further is to realize we are the universal heart. And the Arabic for heart is qualb. And the root of that is to turn or to revolve. So Robert Frager wrote this one book, has a nice analogy of the heart is like a radar. You ever seen uh, all those old movies with them, usually a battleship or something, and this radar screen, little blips show up on there, some plane or some other uh, ship coming toward them. Beep, beep, beep. So the heart is like the radar screen. It continues to turn and to revolve, but it doesn't become fixed or attached to anything. It just notices these, you know, there's appearance there. The heart doesn't become attached to them. So we're going to do this practice. You can ring the gong, and you can either, you can repeat that uh, phrase. You can imagine this, this image fits to you of a radar screen. You can imagine that, the heart just being aware of things. Things are arising, but it's not, it doesn't become attached to things. Just sees them, lets them move on. So that's one thing, or if you can repeat the words, la ilaha ilala, and kind of cleanse the heart, the first part of that, and realize that the heart is the temple of God, the second part. Or you can say it in English, no gods, there is God. Hopefully I didn't give you too many choices there. <laughs> we'll just do about a five minute meditation or so. So I ring the gong and you just... Start repeating the mantra to yourself, whichever one you've chosen. And then at some point, the call to deepen seems to come to you. Then just let the words take you down into the heart area. Hang out down in your heart. I'll ring the gong twice when we're done.
If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice these instructions. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program. One just note about practice we did is it's a devotional practice. You know, I mentioned that Sufism has a strong flavor of devotion. So this remembrance is really remembrance of God. So really, the only way it works is if, if you fall in love with God, you have a relationship with God in some sense. And so if you haven't had that, it kind of can be kind of dry. Actually, one thing that the Sufis do to kind of help generate love and compassion when they start on the path is is to be of service to their fellow seekers, their community. You know, they do service for others. And it's like a quote from Theophane the Recluse, who said, Love is learned by acts of love, humility by acts of humility. So by practicing love, love for others, is how we start to feel that love within ourselves. So this remembrance practice is actually a means and an end. The means, or the practice, is to not become attached to anything that arises. Nothing that arises on this radar screen. Let it all go. Keep seeking God, because anything is not God. Yet, God is everywhere. And in the end, we realize God is the screen. Everything is arising and dissolving in God then remembrance is easy. God is everywhere. Mindfulness is constant. How could you not remember God? So the second level of the nafs, or the self, dos nafs, regretful nafs. We've started to realize how addicted and enslaved we are, gaining freedom, yet easily caught up in old patterns. The danger is hypocrisy, thinking we have attained something we have not. Story told by Sufi teacher Sheikh Musafar. Man madly in love with beautiful woman. Follows her around, finally has courage to talk to her. Declares his love, undying love for her, and flowery terms. She finally stops him and says, Your words are beautiful. You talk well. But my sister is much more beautiful than me, and she's coming behind me. I'm sure you will like her better. The man whips around to look at his sister. The woman slaps him on the neck. <laughs> so I thought your love for me was undying. As soon as I mentioned somebody more beautiful, you turned away from me. You don't even know the meaning of love. 
So, true sincerity is a rare achievement. The third level, tres nafs, inspired nafs. Start to feel genuine love for God, satisfaction with small things. Begin to hear the inner voice of guidance. Feel inspired. Inspiration comes. But also a most dangerous stage. Egoic patterns and habits still present. Ego can co-opt spiritual consolations. Co-opt them as belonging to a self. Feel self-importance. Conceit. Promote ourselves. Important to have a teacher then. Whether in flesh or a sacred text. They will point out we have more inner work to do. Cuatro, number four, <coughs> contented knots. Start to feel contented with whatever God provides. Start to see everything comes from God. Sufi story. Rich man sees a beggar who's a Sufi student. This man can tell that this student is really a holy person by his calm demeanor and his way he carries himself and his meditation. So he decides to give this beggar a large sum of money. Hands him the bag of money, starts to walk away. And the Sufi calls him back. says, before you leave, I have to ask you a couple of questions. Is this all the money you have or do you have more? And he says, oh, I've got a lot more where that came from. No need to worry about that. I'm well off. And the Sufi asks him, do you want more than you have? He says, oh yes, every day I pray to Allah to increase my wealth. Give me two times, three times as much as I have now. So the Sufi hands the bag back to the man. He said, I can't take this. It's against the Sufi law for a wealthy man to take money from a beggar. <laughs> the fifth one is the please knots. Not only content are we, but pleased, even with difficulties and trials. We see that they all come from God. Another story. Ibn Ibrahim, he was a sultan, a former sultan in a kingdom in Arabia. And when he was sultan, he built a beautiful mosque and furnished it with the greatest furnishings he could find. Gold inlays and beautiful rugs. But he just supplied it with everything beautiful. All the columns were beautiful, gold archways. So, but then at some point in his life, he got a spiritual calling, and he left his old life behind. No longer sold it. He went wandering off with the Sufis, became a, a beggar. And one day, several years later, many years later, he was coming back through this kingdom where he used to be the sultan, and he saw his mosque there, and he decided to stop in and and pray and meditate a while. And so he went into the mosque and he noticed that one of these beautiful rugs that he supplied to the mosque was missing. And then he heard a few people talking about somebody had stolen this rug. He went off into a corner to sit and pray and meditate. And pretty soon this big burly guard saw him there and said, You beggar there! You're the one who stole the rug. You're just hiding out here to steal another one. Taking you to the authorities. And so he picks him up by his legs and starts dragging him out of the mosque and he's trying to protest, but the guard won't have anything of it. He takes him out the front door and down these steps. Boom, boom, boom. And every time he goes down, his 
former sultan's head hits the step and his pain is transformed into ecstasy. Boom, all the way down these steps. Boom, boom. <laughs> and he gets to the bottom and he looks up and says, Oh Allah, if only I had built more steps when I was sultan. <laughs> so it seems kind of like a, a high state of practice, but... <laughs> But that, I've had times when, when I've had some fear that just if you just look directly at the fear, it's transformed into the state of ecstasy. So that's certainly possible. But it's also, I think, really pointing us in the direction of really looking at our suffering. The end of suffering can only be found within suffering. I believe it's a Buddhist phrase. And so if you really look directly at your suffering, you're going to find the end of suffering in there the practice. You're not going to find it by turning away from it. It transforms in the process of just looking. And the last one I'll talk about is the pure nafs. This is actually when you transcended self entirely. No ego, no self left. Only unity. Here's a little roomy poem that kind of describes how you might see this get a glimpse of this stage. Rumi says, if you could get rid of yourself just once, the secret of secrets would open to you. The face of the unknown, hidden beyond the universe, would appear on the mirror of your perception. Everything becomes ordinary. No particular story to tell. Then you go into the market, buy some food, have a drink at the tavern. Everything you see and everyone you see is enlightened. So the Sufis say that their psychology is truly a spiritual psychology. I should just give you a definition of spiritual psychology is to realize that, is to see that there is a divine, you want to call it God, divine presence, consciousness. There's something that everything is arising out of and passing away back into. So all these things of ourselves, they're transitory. And there is a permanent abiding happiness, a permanent God, a permanent consciousness. It actually can't be spoken into a word, so anything I say about it really doesn't, it's only pointing at it, it's not really it. So anyway, spiritual psychology recognizes that there is the ultimate divine that incorporates everything. So anyway, the Sufis say that their psychology is truly a spiritual psychology. They do not ignore negative tendencies of humans, but they put them in perspective. They see these negative tendencies as relatively small versus our spiritual nature. They have these lovely images of the uh, mountains in, of light in the heart. So there's the, uh, the mountain of practice. There's a huge mountain of practice in the heart, and there's a mountain of faith, a mountain of spiritual knowledge, a mountain of unification. And all these nafs we've been talking about, all these little aspects of the self, are like small birds that perch on these mountains. So sometimes they swoop down into the high valleys of, uh, of selfless service and humility. But also sometimes they swoop down into the low valleys of doubt, self-conceit, self-centered action. 
when we follow them into the low valleys, that's what causes suffering. So, I'm just going to conclude with one more practice. The uh, recollection of death practice. It's another Sufi practice, and a lot of spiritual practice, I mean, a lot of spiritual traditions use death as a something to practice with. So the story of Muhammad, uh, Prophet Muhammad, was near death, and his disciples were upset because they didn't think they could continue on without him. So he said he would leave two teachers to help them, a speaking teacher and a silent teacher. So there was a big buzz in the disciples about who these two teachers might be. Who would be the speaking teacher? Who would be the silent teacher? Finally, Muhammad clarified it and said, the speaking teacher will be the Quran. The silent teacher is death. So they say we need to develop two important attitudes about death. The inevitable nature of death, and we don't know when it will happen. You know it's going to happen, but you don't know when. So we'll do a practice on contemplating death. I'll just give a little guided meditation or a little guided story to get you started, and then we'll have some silence. So I'll ring the bell and and then uh, tell this little story, and then there'll be time of silence to contemplate it, ponder it in your heart. And you can have your eyes either open or shut when we do this. you have died and the angel of death appears you come face to face with the angel of death the angel of death looks into your eyes and says because of all the good deeds you have done in your life I will give you a little more time the angel of death disappears and you're back in the world and then you start to wonder what did he mean by a little more time What's an angel's concept of time? So how would you begin to live knowing that death could come again at any moment? If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice these instructions. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program.
about how poetry kind of Sufi poetry speaks to the heart. And I mean, I don't speak uh, Arabic or Persian, but I've heard tell that it's just a beautiful language, and it just lends itself well to poetry. Dula gave us the call to worship in Arabic at one retreat several years ago, and it was it was really very beautiful. So I've had that experience of hearing the words of the call to worship in Arabic, and it really touches your heart. Any questions? Comments? Yeah. I, uh, just first of all, thank you. I uh, I have heard stories of stuff I've never heard before, but I have a factual correction. Al Ghazali was not the founder of Sufism. He was a great reformer, and he renewed Sufism and Islam itself at his time. But Sufism and their Sufis who predate Al Ghazali. Well, if I said that, I, that's a mistake. I didn't mean to say. That. I meant to say he was the founder of Sufi psychology. Everybody today looks back to him as a founder. I don't think psychology had been invented. It wasn't a term that was in, in use back then. They looked to him as kind of the founder of, of Sufi psychology because he looks to uh, know yourself, you know. Therapy is trying to do, in a sense. Know who we are. Yeah, Lois. Hi. Uh, what I wanted to ask is, I have a lot of people that come to me for advice when they have death and stuff in, in their families or and people that are close to them. And are you referring, in this instance, to a spiritual death or to a physical death, or both? You mean in this practice we're doing? Mm -hmm. Well, it's kind of both, probably. I mean, we all have to realize that you know, the body is going to die. And you recognize that fact when you face it. You know, it's inevitable that you're going to die. And you don't know when it's going to happen. So if you have that attitude, it can transform your, your life, what life is all about. If you know that, in reality, all you have is this moment. I mean, you could be dead the next moment. So how are you going to live knowing that this is all we have, this very moment? And it also, Sufi, one of their favorite phrases is to die before you die. So that is the spiritual death. It seems like a death if you realize you, you really aren't any of these things. You aren't the body, you aren't the feelings, uh, you aren't your actions. You're, you're this heart, you're this heart essence. It really isn't a personal heart, it's a universal heart. Is that helpful? Yes, definitely. I, I think for me personally, once I'd gone through a spiritual death, that I lost the fear of the physical death. Yeah, well that usually happens if you realize that there's no self there that's going to die. There's no longer anything to be afraid of. Yeah, yeah I just want to say a comment. You mentioned Sufis uh, look at Jesus and Moses, but actually it's Islam. Islam is, uh, you cannot be a Muslim without believing Jesus and Moses and Ibrahim and say in Islam, you say Ibrahim rather than Abraham. And uh, Noah, and supposedly Adam was the first prophet. So you cannot, uh, you cannot be a Muslim without believing on those. Yeah. It was a mistake if I said it was just Sufism. And, and, and also they say that end of time, Jesus is the one that's supposed to come back. At least that's what I've read. Jesus would be the come back at the end of time rather than Muhammad or... Yeah, Muhammad's the one that's coming back. <laughs>
little confused about what you mean by spiritual death. Oh, a spiritual death is to realize that if you realize that there's no self here, that you aren't this body, you aren't the you aren't the feelings. That's what they call a spiritual death. You no longer identify with all those things. Nothing else? We'll call the uh, end of the formal part of the morning over. Key in conversations. If you'd like to stick around and peace to you all, meet again.